The Performance Marketing Podcast is sponsored by the Foxwell Founders Membership. If you want to be great at paid social, the Foxwell Founders Membership is perfect. It's a community of the best paid social marketers and agency owners. Ask any question and hundreds of elite marketers can work with you on it. This isn't a Facebook group with fake ROAS screenshots. These people are paid a lot of money for their advice, and with the Foxwell Founders Membership, you get full access to them 24-7. So go to foxwelldigital.com and sign up today. Hey, welcome to the Performance Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Philippou. I'm joined with Akash Joshi and a special yes, guest, Kyle Lawrence. Uh, Kyle is the head of marketing at Shirley Non-Alcoholic Wines. As you may have recalled, we did a brand review episode and we use them in our templates. We use Shirley in a lot of our templates, CRO templates, um, in various agency and onboarding Google Docs we have going on. And we said, oh, let's audit Shirley or let's look at them. They're a great app brand. Look at their ad library, their website. Talk about them on the podcast. And I didn't know this. Um, Kyle, head of marketing at Shirley, we basically have the same life. We both went to Ohio State. Both were national champion athletes of the Ohio State University and graduated around the same time. And both worked in performance marketing and various agency and brand roles. And here we are today. So very small world uh, we're here. So give a round of applause for Kyle. Thanks, guys. Yeah, very, very small world. I did not know that till today. But love, hate relationship with Twitter. And uh, definitely love the synergies that we have already. And uh, funny, what was it like three or four weeks ago, you guys came out the audit and then we booked a podcast within within a mm-hmm. week so yeah Love very cool things work out that way very cool yeah so basically today we have a lot of nice topics to talk about but as always on the performance marketing podcast we like to talk about actionable marketing concepts and business tips you can do in performance marketing so either the marketing strategy or a process or just a mindset and we try to go deep on very high impact things and we try to minimize fluff so instead of what's working now or a lookalike 7% versus 8% test, we go on very deep psychology, creative angles, stuff like that. So yeah, Kyle, let's go ahead, give a quick intro about yourself, your experience, what led you to where you are today. Yeah. So Kyle Lawrence, head of marketing, as you mentioned, a quick high level overview of, of my career thus far since Ohio State, go Bucks! I went to Ohio State, graduated almost 10 years ago, started a business there. I've always kind of been an entrepreneurial spirit, comes from my parents and grandparents. But yeah, I started a quick uh, website. I was telling you, Eric, before it allowed college students to buy and sell their books, they earned points, they could redeem those points at restaurants on campus. I graduated and uh, ended up continuing in food and beverage, worked in some hotels and restaurants, front of house, back of the house, ended up doing some marketing for some big resorts, got really bored with that life, and then started another company. Started a clothing brand, grew that to uh, six figures really quickly in one year, and then got really screwed by a big box retailer that you guys would all know. I won't say the name. Uh, I was naive, 23 years old, got a PO for a big inventory order and they backed out. 
I had no cash left and uh, was forced to figure out how to run Facebook ads to sell $70,000 of hats and t-shirts. And that's what kind of introed me into Facebook ads, to be honest, out of sheer desperation and survival, mm-hmm. which Very a lot cool of times home. produces the best. Uh, so that was my initial intro to media buying. I had worked for a company called Jack Threads, which was a big menswear company based in Columbus, Ohio. We were kind of the, some of the first advertisers on Facebook, to be honest. But that was like right column days, really no thought, thoughtful creative going into that. It was a PDP image and you're advertising to college students. Very cool. So from there, I, I started taking on little side clients just to pay the bills while I was trying to figure out how to liquidate all these hats and t-shirts that I had and uh, started media buying for a friend of mine who had a surfboard manufacturing company. They're like the largest surfboard manufacturing company in California. Nice. And they, they wanted to start a surfboard brand direct to consumer. So help launch that. And that was an interesting project where, again, we just kept trying to take on projects to get my hands dirty in, in different categories and markets, which then led me to Common Thread Collective. I was like, oh, I've got the skill set now. I want to basically jump in the fire at an agency. And how can I s- spend more money? That, at that point, I was only spending probably like 20, 30K a month um, across like multiple brands, which is nothing. So I, I was intro to Taylor Holiday, the Common Third Collective CEO. And at the time, I had interviewed for a media buyer position, but I actually didn't get the job at first. Um, and I kept following up with Taylor and I for sure annoyed him. And if he's, if he ever listens to this, it, it kind of became like the, the funny story at common thread of like how many times I applied and how many times they don't denied me just off, off sheer lack of experience. And, uh, he ended up offering me an intern position and I accepted the intern position. I think he was kind of surprised by that. Cause at the time I was like already five, six years into my career. And he was like, why would you? accept an intro position, but he, I think he was impressed and ended up actually offering me the media buying position instead of the internship. So I got a full-time position, uh, rather than, you know, a free internship. And nice. that's when my career really like changed the trajectory and started on a team, went from spending like $0 on advertising to spending $20 million in Facebook ad spend in my two to three years at Common Third Collective. And, and worked with, you know, brands that were just starting to brands that were $50 million legacy brands. And so, yeah, within the three years there, you, you just solve so many different unique problems for different businesses of different sizes and categories that you become a generalist very quickly in a specific skill set. And from there, I went to Cuts Clothing for a little over a year and then jumped over to Shirley Wines this last January. Nice. That's very cool. And what I like about it, it's almost identical to my career trajectory, freelancing, then, uh, you know, got into the agency world, then um, went to the brand side and also happened to work in hospitality a lot during college and growing up. So it's kind of wild. I obviously went to the same college and stuff. Uh, We might have the same ex-girlfriends, who knows? But (laughs) I think, uh, yeah, it's very, what you said about the media buying I think that's something 
that a lot of listeners working in an agency role would agree with, or maybe they don't realize it at the time, like in marketing, you're only, you learn as fast as your testing process and your testing feedback loop in an agency role. When you're working with five, 10, 15 clients at a time, you're testing five, 10, 15 times as fast and as much. So a year or two years, three years at an agency is like triple that in the brand side. And I thought that was a very interesting, Kyle, we'll talk about like the transition that media buyers might experience when they go from agency to brand side. But that's something, you know, I worked very hard in the agency world. Akash probably knows too. And it's even more aggressive than the startup world. I went from an agency to a startup and my boss hiring me at the startup was like, are you sure you can handle the startup grind? And I said, I said, dude, I can handle it. Yeah. I work in 25 hours a day in the agency world. Really interesting um, takeaway for media buyers listening when they go to the brand side versus the agency side that wanted to highlight. And um, Kyle, what were kind of your, when you went from like the agency side to the brand side, what were some of the biggest uh, changes or things that surprised you? Yeah. So the agency side is great because of your visibility to a broad set of brands and the sheer volume of problems that you can solve and you do solve in a given day or week. It's, mm-hmm. it's wild. And similar to what you were saying, like the agency versus startup side agencies, you're solving a variety of different problems constantly. And there are a lot of them are repeatable problems. So you become, your competency levels increase drastically mm-hmm. and <clears throat> at a really high rate, like at common thread, we used to call it your uh, increase your slope. And there's really like, I haven't worked in an industry where the concept of increasing your slope, which is typically people throughout their career will move at like a 45 degree angle, right? As they learn new things, they'll progress one step at a time. And so if you look at the average trajectory as a 45 degree, typically an agency, you're, you're going at like 60, 70, 80 degrees in a short period of time based off the vault, the sheer volume of problems that you solve and that broad set of brands that you're working with, depending on the type of agency that you work at. So that is a lot. It's a lot of stress, um, but it also accelerates your career at the same time. And so exiting that and going to the brand side, it does give you more time back, I would say. And that time can then be allocated to deeper work. So once you build up your competency level and understand how to solve future problems based off your experience of solving those, uh, those, that, those processes become easier, especially on the brand side when you can get into a room and you know someone's complaining about a problem. You're like, oh, I've solved that problem 60 times yeah. for, for, for different products. So it's been nice to almost kind of like, if you think of a, like an EMT approaching a situation, like you're calm collected, you're not running around trying to figure out how to like revive someone. Uh, so it, it's nice to come out of a, a fast paced 
environment like that and then walk into a scenario where you're you can be calm collective competent and uh assure your your coworkers that you've you've solved these problems before the brand side number one i always find myself trying to pursue the customer more and deeply understand the customer on the agency side it's really hard to do that where yeah, you're you're just trying to trying to create repeatable processes to make your job easier and effective for the client but the gap is you're not close to the customer whatsoever i think there's processes and tools that you can use to if you're an agency owner or employee and that's a problem like getting your clients to use like inquire post-purchase surveys shout out to inquire yeah. <laughs> um, there's other tools out there as well of scalable repeatable ways to engage with customers that don't require you to actually be in person with them so yeah, that's uh, going on the brand side. It's been really enjoyable to actually understand the customer more and have that influence different marketing tactics and strategies versus just looking at ad account data and trying to interpret that for your future yeah. business decisions. Yeah, that's very similar to what I saw. Like I would say I, got a, I became a better marketer because I could go deeper instead of broader. Uh, the agent, but the agency level of urgency, the processes, the efficiency, the overall foundational skill level and competence, uh, I wouldn't trade that for the world. You know, that's a, I'm glad I had those tough days or years or whatever you want to call them. But yeah, then you go to the brand side, you just kind of unleash you like, and from a career standpoint on the brand side, if you're going to the brand side, you're as an agency employee. One of the reasons is probably higher pay. I will say it. Um, a lot of the times it's a small to medium sized company or even a big one that has an equity piece. Um, that's something, or if not, you should look for one. That's a very cool thing. And you get to go deeper. You own more of the funnel. You can make your own landing pages. Anyway, you learn a lot more of psychology and stuff. You go deeper. It's really, really cool. But so, so yeah, if you're on the agency side right now, and you know, you're grinding, um, you're it's, there is like this part of the career you see, Oh, iOS 14 is difficult. Agency life is difficult. What am I doing with my career? I get asked this question a lot. Should I change careers? And I say, well, where a lot of the marketing dollars go. A lot of the marketing dollars are going away from agencies, not ad spend. So what does that mean? They're building it in house. You can go to the brand side. And there's, it's a really cool, there's a lot of cool stuff going on on the brand side, especially if you're skilled enough. You, if you think you're as good as your agency salespeople say you are when they're pitching clients and you have an equity piece on the brand side, um, you can make some serious cash if they get exited. So that's just something to keep in mind. Also, the salary is good. It's, it's also just fun working on one company instead of an agency. It, there, there's a lot of pros and cons, but that's uh, something that I wanted to drive home to the listeners who work on the agency side or they want to explore the brand side. Yeah, I think that with the agency side, uh, well, with the agency versus brand side, it's always like that deeper versus broader. Like you, you will learn a lot of the agency side for sure. But brand side is where a lot of people genuinely generally go. Carl, I got a question. Like when you look towards that 
brand side and working at a brand like what what are your um like you know do you look for culture do you look for product market fit what what does that sort of look like when it when you went from like Kurtz and even at Shirley now um like what do you actually look for in a, in a really you know strong brand um to market for yeah, are you are you asking what do I look for before I approach the brand or when I come to a brand? What am I what am I looking for in regards to opportunities? Oh, both. I think both actually really yeah. good. So yeah, when you're applying as well. Yeah, it, it's it's been pretty unique to the product category and the size of the business. So for cuts, they were a pretty established brand that was was already four to five years old. And for them, it was, they'd already spent a ton of money on Facebook ads. They were looking for new channel adoption, as well as like, how do we be more disruptive in a legacy category that's hyper competitive? Mm -hmm. And then for Shirley, it was, we're essentially a startup that's trying to change drinking culture with a new category product. Uh, so there's a lot of education. Um, it's also highly saturated. Like there's a billion beverage brands out there. So mm -hmm. just because we're a new category doesn't mean there's already, you know, your fridge is already filled with beverages. So we're competing with seltzer waters. We're competing with also non-alc categorical brands, as well as 60% of our customers are drinkers. And so we're also competing with, you know, their alcoholic beverage life while trying to change culture and tell them that, you know, moderation is better than how they're currently living. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to answer your question, it's, it's really unique to the product category and the stage of the business. Um, the key is, I mean, I'm always trying to figure out who the customer is. And how do we pour more dollars into acquiring the most valuable customer um, and, and continuing to find repeatable ways to do that? Mm -hmm. That's really nice. cool. Yeah. And I like that a lot as you're searching. I know when I went to the brand side, it was more of a, honestly, they all reached out to me and uh, you know, that whole song and dance happened. So, but, but, you know, I had, you can pick different brands. It's very interesting. I won't say the companies I turned down, but you know, it, it's a, almost braggadocious for if you heard the names. Um, but you know, you joining the opportunity that the team and stuff that you join and the actual opportunity, like you said, the stage of the business, the problem they're solving is a lot more powerful than uh, the actual, like the, the vanity of the company name. That's why I'm saying it's braggadocious. Some of the companies I rejected but the actual role was very boring. There was like kind of a useless thing. I didn't really care about. It looks cute on a resume for five seconds, but then I would go to a place, oh, we're disrupting a very disgusting industry. We're the only good player. And then there's the equity side. Then there's the CAC to LTV ratio I'd be working with was actually very, very attractive, better than some of these other brands. So I was like, oh, that's actually an easier. It's not a sexy brand, the warranty one I was at. Um, you know, it's, it's a warranty. It's not like some very sexy product, you know, it's, it's a, but they're 
the 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 metrics of it made it be like, oh, this is a very scalable and very cool, smart, brilliant business model. That if you have an equity piece, it's uh, it's a really really powerful position to be. In. So that's something I looked for too. Yeah, so I would say don't be so focused on the vanity, focused on the like look deeper in the metrics. So it's very cool that you look for that. Um, yeah, and, and to follow up on that too, to your question, I think one of the most important things to do before you take on a client or you even you know, apply for a position or an accept a position is deeply understanding the unit economics of this business. So for like, for beverage in particular, like it's an infamous category for bad margins. So like I took it on as a challenge because I, I felt like one, I was passionate for the non-out category that's been exploding, but for an industry that has historically terrible margins, especially in wine too, like I wanted to take on the challenge of like, how do we crack this code? Because mm-hmm. it seems like no one has really done it with D2C. And it's always kind of been the classic historical strategy of blast advertising and then people go buy in retail. So if you don't have retail distribution, how do you do it? Uh, so that's kind of, that's been the challenge. And, but if I didn't really understand the unique economics of surely or cuts, it, it makes your job impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not have that's that very important. Yeah. That's really cool. And it's cool that you challenge yourself. Um, that's something that I'm sure like you go into some, whether it's a brand side or it's a tough client, you know, it's hard, but, you come out of it like a much better marketer and you know, the bigger problem you solve in capitalism, the more money there is for you. And so there's something to be said for that too. Um, all right, cool. So speaking of whether it's the agency and efficiency or the brand side efficiency, uh, what is an SOP or process, whether it was agency or brand side, that had the most impact on your work. And I ask because a lot of listeners, they love to nerd out on new processes. Like you said, they're agency employees looking for the most efficient process to do their job well. Yeah, this is probably not the answer that people want to hear, but the most beneficial skill set or process that has impacted my worker career has been the ability to read a financial statement. Wow. So the ability to be able to read a PL, cash flow statement. Uh, balance sheet for a business has drastically increased my career. Uh, mm-hmm. So that competency to be able to sit in a room with a CEO or a CFO and have them trust you in your ability to perceive business decisions and how your work impacts the income statement is massively valuable. Nice. That's a really cool, that's an underrated one. And oh yeah, I love that one. I, that's something I personally, and I took an accounting class at Ohio state, yeah. uh, shout out Mark Smith. Um, you might remember him, but I think, uh, yeah, I don't, I would, if you showed me one, I wouldn't know exactly how to read it. Sometimes I just ask like, what's your break even CPA, what's whatever. Um, so what other benefits are, are there? Like, I guess the CEO is comfortable, you know, where to prioritize your direct response marketing for the best ROI or what else? Let's dig into that more. Yeah, that's a good question. So 
just having a deep understanding of what levers you have access to pull that impact the inputs that go into the forecast. <laughs> and because a lot of times, whether you're on the agency side or you're on the brand side within the growth team, there's constant tension behind like the work that you're doing and how it impacts the real performance of the business. Cause you may see the ad account ROAS looks great or from all the efficiency metrics or even the metrics and KPIs they've given you all of a sudden your client's pissed off or your boss is pissed off and you don't really understand why. And most of the time it's a cash flow reason. Like they just wrote a huge check for inventory and a million dollars just went out the door. But like, oh, but the Facebook ad account rose is at a 4X, like we're happy. And mm-hmm. you don't understand, there's no, there's no translation to like ad account performance or paid media performance and your boss or client being happy. So mm-hmm. if you understand how the work you're doing influences the income statements and the pulse on the operator of the business, that that's going to help you a lot. So it, every business forecasts forecasts a little bit differently, but understanding like what actually goes into a CAC or what goes into, you know, a new customer ROAS, um, how to drive organic revenue to offset, you know, your CAC and drive it down and, uh, you know, operating expenses and, you know, how the marketing team has power over potentially like reducing those expenses or other overhead, reducing returns, discounts, all that that goes into the PL that the marketing team has authority and power over, if you understand mm-hmm. how those levers work. Nice. That's really cool. Uh, I got a question, Carl. Like how easy is it to predict cash flow and, and forecasting? for a startup versus some like a, a brand that's already established, like, you know, be, being in there for like years versus, you know, a brand that might be, you know, they've just started their brand first year in, they don't have too much to reference off or too much to, to really understand like how, like, you know, what are the you know, ma- major differences between, uh, you know, predicting cash flow and, and forecasting for, for, you know, small and, and then more established brands. Yeah, that's that's a, a common question. It's really difficult for startups, especially if depending on your SKU count, and I mean demand planning. Yeah, I I help demand planners, but it's it's not my strong skill set. I I prefer to be on the creative advertising side of the business. But yeah, I I. <laughs> A business, you need like at least a year's worth of data to really start to build your confidence level in in your forecast Um, or, you know, surrounding yourselves with other category brands to get an understanding of benchmarks or baselines or, and that's honestly like one of the values of working with an agency is they have access to those data sets, those broader data sets across categories to help you you know, answer the question of like, what's normal? Like, what is a benchmark for me? So I think Common Thread Collective does a great job 
aggregating those data sets and sharing them with business owners to get an understanding of like, what's, what's a good AOV? Like what's, what's a good CAC? Is my conversion rate normal relative to the average order value in this industry? So I would say, look for those resources. If you don't have the data to, to service your forecasts um, and, you know, Historical data doesn't always, isn't always indicative of future outcomes, but uh, yeah. it's, it's the only thing we have. Yeah. And you model it out very conservatively with conservative metrics. Cause what you don't want to happen, Akash, like, and everyone listening is you make these very uh, overly optimistic projections and oftentimes associated with a pitch for a service that you get paid a lot of money on. Um, and then you fail, right? Or you don't even come close to that. It's better to make very conservative projections. And, you know, if you kind of miss it or something, it's not as bad or you account for problems like, like however well you think you can do, uh, just model it out bad. It's also good because if you model it out with extremely conservative projections and then the numbers actually do look pretty good, it gives you a lot of confidence going in like, okay, well, I have some room for error. And if I'm just actually doing a good job, we actually do even better results. So, you know, yeah. there's pros and cons to modeling it out like that, but yeah, more data is very good for that situation. Um, going into things like, so maybe actual marketing stuff now. So you're at common thread, um, now you're on the brand side. When you went to the brand side, you know, I'm just looking at LinkedIn. It said director of paid media, then head of growth. Uh, did you expand beyond paid social or were you always more than just paid social Google ads and stuff like that? Or did you expand your channels? And if so, what, how did you approach expanding new channels? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I was at Common Thread Collective, I was a growth strategist that managed a team that we managed paid social and paid search for a broad set of clients. Hmm. My specific skill set was in paid social management. So I managed tens of millions of dollars on Facebook and Instagram for brands. When I became a strategist, I then managed the media buyers who manage paid search and paid social. So my competency level is pretty high on paid search and paid social. Um, at Cuts, we expanded into TV, podcasts, radio. Um, so each of my positions, I've kind of been able to accumulate different competencies of different channels and understand uh, their purpose and how they should behave. And then coming into Shirley, kind of going taking a step back to startup life and understanding, okay, like what channels make sense for this product category you know, what's going to drive demand generation versus demand capture in this stage of the business. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's kind of been my, my experience. If that answers your question. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And, and like, so that's a great segue into another question related to that. A lot of people there in the agency world and they're going to the brand side, there's a big chance when especially when you look at the roles, let's say you're only a paid social person. There's all these jobs that are called growth marketer. What's that? Oh, I have to do a paid search too. Oh man. Um, 
then you get into the role and things like radio and TV, not exactly purely direct response platforms come into play. How do you approach something like that? And especially in paid media. Yeah. So channel expansion is an interesting conversation and, you know, as a smaller brand, probably doesn't make sense because Facebook has created such a powerful and effective ad tool that the thought of either taking money or adding new money on to a more volatile ad platform, even like TikTok, but we'll save that for another conversation, but for like TV, radio, podcasting, higher risk, higher top of funnel, long tail attribution, um, all demand generation channels. So I mentioned demand generation versus demand capture. So demand generation being, you know, your Facebook, TikTok, podcast, TV, print, meet different uh, editorial placements. And then demand capture being Google, being, um, you know, email, other demand capture channels. So number one, I new channels should always be incremental testing budget. You shouldn't be taking money from Facebook and putting it in the TV. For sure. And so, and with that, kind of like we were talking about before, like make sure your forecasts are very conservative. Like almost like if we launch this channel and make zero conversions, we're okay with it. (laughs) Or if we, if we don't see any purchases attributed to this ad spend for three months, we're okay with it. So go into that with that. Uh, number two, understand the medium that you're advertising on and make sure that you have the right creative or you're set up for success in that medium. So for example, like if you're sent on a podcast agency, like make sure your reads are correct. You have a copywriter, they have a copywriter, your, your offers are set up. Like, do you have products that are, you know, might align better with a podcast host? TV is interesting. Like high production creative versus low production creative, what performs best, make sure you have a a wide set of creative to test. There's a lot of minimum spend thresholds where you need to spend a quarter million bucks just to, just to test. So yeah, there's high risk, high reward, but probably not for everyone. Yeah. I see what you mean. When you, uh, I was going to say that when you have so many different channels, like how, like what does attribution look like then with like TV with, is it just like total spend versus total new customers or total like, like and then it's literally about that PNL or is it, you know, any, anything different? Yeah, it, it gets pretty, gets pretty wonky to be honest. <laughs> I I've resorted to, a post-purchase survey attribution model. So we'll ask, it's kind of, you know, back to marketing 1992, where we ask people after they purchase, how did you hear about us? And obviously it's dependent on the response rate, how many people fill out the response, how your survey is set up, but we're constantly critiquing it and, and making edits so that we're getting the cleanest data as possible. And then we're creating a multiplier across all those channels based off the survey response data and letting that inform how our media buyers are also making decisions in the ad accounts. 
So, and then we're, and then we set targets based off that too. So like for Google, for example, the attribution model through a post-purchase survey will make Google look terrible because not that many people are actually hearing about the product through Google, but sometimes you're scaling into ROAS on Google, right? And you're scaling because you're seeing good ROAS, but that ROAS is actually mostly retargeting spend. So our, we've, we've had some clarity on, on attribution as, that, as a good example. So we're, you know, different channels will behave differently within different attribution models. It's just a matter of, you know, picking one that works for your business and holding that as the source of truth. Is that something that's built in-house with a data team or you have like a, an attribution agency or tool you would recommend someone listening look into? Yeah. So ours is built in-house. So ours, we use Inquire post-purchase survey. And then based off that, we, it, it syncs up with Shopify flows. And so an example would be someone responds with, I heard about your product through a Facebook ad. Shopify flow takes that response and does an order tag. And then based off the order tag, we're pulling super metrics and summing the number of responses based off how people respond and then running that through our attribution model. So we're taking, let's just say 40% of customers say that they heard about us through a Facebook ad or applying that 40% to our revenue and then running the row the ROAS based off that. Nice. That's really cool. And yeah, that's a great explanation of this larger operation attribution for a lot of people listening who they've been very siloed into one channel their whole career so far. And they want to just get an idea of what that even looks like. Cause you Google an article of what you just said and it's very, uh, it's very dry. It can be very dry, very quick, but a quick explanation for listeners curious about it is very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's all about understanding to the relationship of the different attribution models. It's not a going like, Hey, triple whale says this, or Kyle's post-purchase survey attribution model says this. It's understanding the relationship between what platform says and all these different attribution models out there. And then making your best guess at, at what's happening and seeing how your changes impact future performance. Because um, yeah. I've, I've gotten it wrong so many times. So, uh, and, and people are kind of looking for these absolute truths and attribution and there's really not. Yeah. Do you find that creative truth. testing, let's say on paid social, for example, if you're using that, that's like a very big picture. You just get the purchase and yeah. you know, it's from a Facebook ad, but you don't know which ad, which ad set. Um, how do you find yourself optimizing uh, with that? Yeah, that, that's the gap right now that we're trying to solve, to be honest, is, you know, you can have a high level Facebook adjusted attribution ROAS, but then like you're saying, it's having an understanding of how to then adjust your campaign level targets. So like, for example, if, our multiplier is 1.3, meaning that like, we think that Facebook's under attributing our ROAS by 1.3. So then we're applying that 1.3 across our campaign targets. Hmm. 
Um, and, and so like we're, we're essentially doing that and then seeing how, you know, by set readjusting those targets, how it's impacting the overall efficiency. Um, yeah, we, we haven't done order tags yet by campaign. Like, how did you hear about us? Okay. What, what, yeah. what did the ad look <laughs> targeting like? Targeting campaign prospecting. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah I see what you mean. Go ahead. Again, surely it's not a huge issue because we're not investing in 10 plus channels, but for some bigger businesses, you know, 50 million plus, this attribution model might not be the best. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have Chance Riley on at Cuts Clothing, I know he's been developing out the attribution model quite a bit since they first launched the post-purchase survey model last year. So he might have some more robust details into, you know, more campaign specific or ad specific attribution. Nice. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. Cause obviously attribution, you know, every developer I know who talks to me about Facebook ads are like, Oh, I let's start an attribution company together. I'm like, take it easy. <laughs> everyone knows it's like a big issue in uh, yeah. our industry now, like with iOS 14 and stuff. So. Yeah. I used to, I used to tell people at common third collective or the, at least the clients when we would argue about attribution, I was like, if I had the answer to attribution, I would not be here on this call. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be on a yacht somewhere. Yeah. But not the yacht named attribution. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yacht name. Exactly. Just like, sounds like retribution. Yeah. It sounds like regal, but, um, attribution. Anyway. Um, all right. Very cool. And so let's go into like marketing concepts now, like the marketing psychology, marketing concepts, you know, like us in the agency world, we've seen every industry, not, I like to say, I think I've seen everything, but then every day I'm reminded I am not, but you know, you've seen a million things. Uh, what are some of the marketing concepts or principles, especially marketing psychology stuff that you found to be the most useful across all niches and all channels? Great question. And, and this is honestly, as we continue to talk about the agency versus the brand side, being on the brand side has been so fruitful in the sense that you're continually reminded to go back to basic marketing principles and, and concepts. Or on the agency side, you're moving so fast. It's just try, how do we create a process that's repeatable and effective? And you kind of disregard historical concepts. So for me, I've been a big Donald Miller fan for a while. He started a company called StoryBrand. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but he wrote a book that constantly reminds marketers to remind yourself that you're the guide and not the hero as the brand and that your customer is the hero. And your responsibility is to provide a, a pathway to make your customer the hero of their own life. That's very cool. So that's, I always try to remind myself that with any ad concept, any marketing campaign, any email flow, my customer is the hero. I'm not the hero. Cause it's super easy as the brand or the, to just immediately tell someone about the, the what behind the product, right? Yeah. And not the, and not the why and how it actually makes the customer's life better. Yeah. Number. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. I was going to say number two, be disruptive. I don't know if you've read Seth Godin's book, Purple Cow, but that's one of my favorite marketing books. And one of his famous quotes is 
being risky is safe and being safe is risky. No, it's very true. And uh, some of the ads we talk about, we, we look at Dr. Squatch's ad library. Almost every episode I reference it. And that is like their game. It's like chaos is their strategy. And that's why they're dominant. Um, I love what you mentioned also that first one, like have the customer be the hero and just arm them to be the hero of their own journey. I, what I love about that is it cuts through a lot of the issues that a lot of other marketers have. You're, you're forced to think, oh, when I write an ad, ask what's in it for me, like the customer, what's the benefit to their life as opposed to the feature of the product. For example, like Hugo Boss shirt, you're not going to say 100% organic. It's a feature. You're going to say, look sexy, fast. So that's like, like that's the benefit of their life. So I love that mindset. And yeah, it cuts, it goes through a lot of like great just marketing principles. I can see how that's beneficial on every channel. That's very, very cool. Is there any like a copywriting formula you find yourself sticking to a lot just out of just, oh, I got to write a headline. What should I say real quick? No matter how refined it or not it is. Yeah, I guess if we're talking specifically about ads on Facebook, there's a winning ad formula that was actually sent over by a colleague that we've used and tested and it works quite well. I don't know if you guys have a way of communicating via text to your to your listeners, but I could definitely share an actionable formula that could be useful to a lot of these media buyers. But I think uh, like if you, if you look at the Do- Dr. Squatch libraries, Manscaped, a lot of these, you know, historically favored direct response brands that are, I don't know the numbers behind a lot of these brands, but we could all assume that they're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the key is, is the hook of, you know, number one, writing some sort of hook, the hook being like something that's disruptive, it could be one, two seconds in your face, get someone to stop. And then immediately dressing a pain point in that person's life. A lot of times brands jump straight into talking about the product. You got to talk about the customer first. And so every product and category is different, but you're solving someone's problem and you have to address that first. And then talk about the product we like to use the word value props. So throw in your value props, speak to the benefits and then speak to a guarantee. So for us, it's surely, if you don't like the wine, we'll refund you hundred percent. Other oh, brands wow. have different guarantees. Nice. Uh, like at cuts was, was like the fit, like you're going to like the fit. And if you don't like it, send it back. We'll get you like, we'll make sure we will get you in the right clothes. Nice. And then a clear call to action. So whether that's like, you know, there's a lot of brands right now in beverage, whether it's Mudwater, Us, Athletic Greens, they've got some sort of sampler pack with a big offer. Yeah. Or they're trying to get someone into subscription. Uh, every brand's different, but making sure that you got a clear call to action and offer attached to it to drive that conversion. Nice. That's really cool. And there are similarities to a lot of the scripts, templates we do, but I like you added a lot of cool nuance like the guarantee is something that I think our listeners haven't heard yet, at least from us. And like, I love that. Yeah. Again, the, that hero's journey of the customer, like starting off with what about them solving their problem. 
and there, there's a, there's a marketer on Twitter. I will shout out uh, Barry hot. He's always talking about how, um, you know, marketers don't care about your ads. They care about themselves and how your ads have to speak to that. So very, very good. I, I love it. It's a really good, like a bankable psychology for marketing. I love that. All right, cool. Uh, Akash, any points there or comments? Nah, I love that though. I love that. Uh, so should we get into a really a good one? What what career advice, if you were to go back six or, or however long, probably more than that, years, would you give someone, you know, starting out in the industry? Like what would you start with first? Would you go media buying first or would you go creative first? Like, you know, what's the you know hardest to understand or, you know, what, what would you try to grasp to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. So my suggestion would be become a generalist. I don't know if you've read the book Range, but it's a great book that talks about how uh, the benefits of being a generalist versus specialist. So a specialist would be like, you only learn how to Facebook media buy and that's all you do. And you don't really take the time to you know work on your copywriting or understand how to be a front-end developer or work you know, understanding how to uh, do SQL or sorry, SQL and, and becoming a generalist of your skill sets in growth marketing. Brian Balfour has a great course for, for growth marketing. It's a little bit expensive, but worth the investment if you have the time and, and the resources. But yeah, I would say be patient, be a generalist uh, and be financially competent. Again, like go back, take an accounting course if you need to. There's probably more digestible courses out there specifically for e-commerce that doesn't <laughs> that don't require you to go back to school. But learn how to read a PL, cash flow statement, balance sheet, uh, and connect with people on Twitter, connect with people who are smarter than you. Uh, don't think you need to know everything yourself. Delegate work to other people. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Nice. That's awesome. And then like maybe going more into like specifically head of growth roles. Um, you know, if someone, let's say they're in the agency world or even though they're on the brand side and they want to be head of growth or they want to start their own brand and they're just curious, what does a growth team look like? They only know Facebook ads. Uh, what would you, what would be the team makeup? Let's say they're starting out with like thousand dollars a month and spend nothing crazy um what would be their actually let's call it like a small to medium-sized business something established is you can do one channel with that but um what would be the channel stack the platform stack the team makeup stuff like that you would suggest yeah that's a great question i was gonna say it's super unique to the size of the business product strength of the personnel that you have currently but if you're starting from scratch classic growth team and, and we went back and forth on this at Common Thread Collective too, where like you try to create this repeatable team structure and then you have certain personnel who have certain strengths and then the team morphs with that. So again, it's, it's really going to ebb and flow with who's on your team and who you end up hiring. But if you're going to say like, what's the, you know, blanket umbrella strategy, I would say you got paid social buyer who manages TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook, Pinterest, your paid social generate uh, demand generation channels, 
paid search buyer running Google, Bing, YouTube, and then a creative strategist. So this is your idea person. I would say, depending on your creative competency levels of your media buyer, you may not need a creative strategist, but it's mm. definitely helpful. Creative strategist is your idea guy. He's creating disruptive ideas that are generative and not necessarily iterative. So it's like, hey, give me new ideas that are going to move the needle and let the media buyer figure out how to iterate on ideas that are working. And then for design resources, I think in the last couple of years, this has changed drastically because like there's AI generated creative now. There's all these outsourced design houses that are 300 bucks a month and you get unlimited creative. So it's a lot, there's a lot of stress and pressure on actual designers now to produce a lot, produce better than the machines out there and uh, provide that creative strategy. So I don't necessarily think you need a designer anymore. Hot topic. Oh, wow. I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's there are acknowledge it is a hot controversial take, but I, I see where you're coming from too. Yeah. I think there are cases in which you, you do need them for, you know, if you're doing a TV campaign, you're going to need an editor. Uh, if let, let's just say you get 10 UGC videos sourced from TikTok and you need someone to edit them down perfectly, that's probably a case that a lot of these other resources may not be best served for that. But yeah, there's, there's a company called Pencil that does AI generated creative where you upload your media library and they'll pump out assets 50 a week. Very oh, no way. That's crazy. There's, there's design houses like No Limits Creative who also yeah. like you have to brief them out really extensively, but they'll execute a well-briefed brief. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another company coming up called Use Butter, which is, you know, they essentially took top D2C brand templates and you can go in and plug and play with your product, text, everything on ad templates that they know work. So there, there's a lot of cool resources out there to support design, mm -hmm. but yeah, to paid social, paid search buyer, creative strategist, and then go find design resources. I would, depending on the size of business, you said small, medium, Facebook, Google, TikTok, and uh, making sure that you're seeding your product to influencers, getting their feedback on it. That's very using their content for ads. That authority. Uh, authority. Yeah. Also content. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Nice. That's really, really good stuff. All right. This is an awesome episode. We're really excited. A uh, lot of, like, of no, no, we, we have to have a part two. I'm not done here. Like we have to have a part two. <laughs> yeah, Kyle, you have to come back. Part on for 